Hello, my friends, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and community beyond the walls and the fences and the confines of institutional religion. In this second episode of season two of the podcast, I am thrilled to introduce you to my friend Brad Davis. Brad is a pastor and an advocate for social justice reforms in the central Appalachian coalfields of Southern West Virginia. Brad has really a remarkably compelling vision for what justice and restored community can look like in that very impoverished and often forgotten region of the country through what he calls the holler gospel. And so you'll get to hear us talk a little bit about what specific justice issues um, there are in the coal fields of West Virginia and how those issues are very often intertwined with lots of other justice movements. So I hope you'll enjoy listening to this episode and to to all of the really interesting things Brad has to say. So please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to my friend, Brad Davis. So so the the holler gospel is a gospel that comes from the low places, right? It's a gospel that comes from the depression, uh, from the hollowed out places uh, of life. for those of you that are familiar with, with Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, his, his, his whole premise of the book is based around the question, what does the religion of Jesus have to say to those with their backs against the wall? Our people here in the coalfields have had their backs against the wall for over a century. Our guest for this episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast is my good friend, Brad Davis. Um, Brad is working um, as a United Methodist pastor in the Coalfield region of West Virginia. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means here in a few minutes. But welcome, Brad. We're we're happy to have you on the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Joe, what took you so long? To I don't know, man. I don't know. It's been on my radar for a while, but you know, just getting you had to move, and then our schedules got all yeah. out of whack and all of that stuff. So, well, why don't you um, take a second and tell the folks a little bit about who you are and what you do, and and kind of what brings us into this conversation? Well, first of all, let me say thank you, my friend, for inviting me uh, to to be a guest on your show. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Uh, as you said, my, my name is Brad Davis. I am um, a United Methodist clergy. I currently am a provisional elder in the West Virginia Conference of the United Methodist Church, and I am pastor of Nybert Memorial United Methodist Church in Logan, West Virginia, which is the county seat of Logan County and in the heart of the Southern Coalfield region of West Virginia, of which, uh, just so happens, I am a native. Uh, I was born and raised in Williamson, West Virginia, which is just about, oh, 25 miles or so south of here, right on the Kentucky border. Um, so yeah, uh, me coming back to Logan, because I just uh, recently uh, began this appointment uh, in the at the beginning of July, um, so this is a homecoming for me, and I'm excited to be here. Very nice. Very nice. Well, let's um, just, you know, to kind of help people who may not be familiar with our area where 
where we live. Um, let's kind of define for folks a little bit what what region of the country it is when we're talking about when we talk about the the West Virginia coalfield or just the Southern Appalachian, I guess coalfield because it's not just West Virginia, right? It kind of spreads across uh, a, a broader area than that. So, w- what are we talking about when we talk about the coal fields? Well, we're talking about the Central Appalachia region, which is basically uh, the entire state of West Virginia. Uh, you talk about the, the coal fields of Central Appalachia. We're talking about uh, the West Virginia, uh, Western Pennsylvania, Southeast Ohio, Eastern Kentucky. All of those uh, areas uh, have uh, coal field regions within them. Uh, more specifically, though, uh, when I am talking of the coal fields, uh, I, I am speaking of uh, Southern West Virginia, which is really an, an eight county area south of Charleston um, that comprises what is known as the Southern West Virginia coal fields. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so obviously it gets that name for a reason, right? It's it's kind of the heart of where the, the coal extraction industry um, is, right? Exists in, yes. in West Virginia and, and, and you're close to, to that um, Eastern Kentucky region as well, right? And, Correct. Uh, so what, so we've kind of defined like geographically that area, but can you describe the area culturally a little bit? Because I think that's really one, one of the unique things about the Coalfield region. Yeah, so, so culturally, uh, the, the, the region was, this particular region of West Virginia, area of West Virginia was the last to be settled by white settlers. Um, in the in the 18th uh, to into the 19th century, um, and that's but, that's some rugged country too. We should point yes. out, like it's not it's yes. not Nebraska, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's it's very rugged, uh, which is very rural, which is why it was the last place to be settled. Uh, so so basically, you, you had uh, settlers coming into this area, um, immigrants from. Uh, Scotland and Wales, uh, Ireland, uh, those areas, Germany too, uh, somewhat, uh, that were, uh, you had a lot of folks who were coming here to be independent uh, because this was such an isolated place. Uh, You could come in here and kind of forge your own identity, forge your own way, uh, so to speak. So, So you had communities uh, that sprang up uh, in the, the hills and valleys uh, of this area uh, where primarily uh, agriculture became uh, the, the main industry, so to speak, uh, for lack of a better term, we we'll use the term industry, um, uh, subsistence farming. Right. Uh, mountainside subsistence farming, too. Mountainside right? Again, it's not Nebraska. Right. right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, this, this, we're not talking about large-scale farms, no. Um, th- th- these are farms that uh, uh, you had livestock and grew food to sustain yourself. But you also, you see the development of uh, sort of an, an interregional uh, economy with this, which leads to a, a non-cash 
uh, a non-cash economy where there, there's a level of affluence uh, that people reach uh, and, and land ownership uh, that, that people have uh, that gives them a, a level of independence that they may not have had uh, living somewhere else uh, in the country. Um, so yeah, so so that is primarily uh, what you see coming into the region in the early settler period of the you know seventeenth, eighteenth, and into the nineteenth century. Okay, so explain um, a, just a little bit about what you mean by a non-cash economy, right? Because that's more than just a, a barter economy, too, right? It, it's it's it is that, but it's also more than that, right? Yeah, uh, well, it, primarily trading. You're 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 trading uh, uh, rather than using cash. Okay, so so it is a barter economy. Yeah, it's ba ba basically a barter economy. Okay, okay, cool. So I was just trying to make sure I understood that. Yeah. So, so yeah, so you've got these settlers that come into this really isolated region, um, and. You know, some somewhere along the the way, somebody discovers that like there's this coal in the ground. <laughs> yes, and which is good for a lot of things, right? Um, not the least of which is heating homes, primarily uh, early on. Right. Um, but then you, we begin to discover that you know you can you can generate electricity from burning those rocks. Right? Correct. So yeah. So going back to the, the mid to late 18th century. Uh, first, you have um, uh, external interests coming in here to timber. Uh, the, the the just the abundance of you know we're in the middle of an abundant forest, right? So uh, the timbering industry began to emerge. But then, uh, like you said, you have the discovery of coal uh, in this region, uh, and that changes everything here. Um, you have, um, again, outside interests begin coming into the area and, and again, realize that this is the, the, at the same time, this is the, the rise of industrialization in America. This is the rise of really our, our um, or the origin, rather, of our current capitalist consumer system, economic system. Right. Um, so, so you have speculators begin to come in um, and start buying up the land uh, from the local population, uh, sometimes doing it legally, sometimes not so legally, uh, sometimes strong arming people out of their land, uh, sometimes it, even committing murder. Uh, to take the land of, of folks who live here. Uh, that began with really primarily the railroad companies because in order to get the coal out, you had to first bring railroad lines in. Uh, so, so beginning around 1890-ish or so, you, you had uh, the rail companies began to extend their lines into this area, and then you saw the coal mines begin to open up. Um, so, so what happened was you basically have a, a scenario where you have a, 
really colonization began to take place in this area. Uh, you, you have a absentee land ownership from interests in the Northeast coming in, taking the land and using the native population or the, the white settler population as exploiting that population as a workforce mm. to, to extract the resources uh, f- from the region. Uh, it's really, you know, we know and we learn about um, the imperial European uh, nations of that same time period doing this uh, in African nations, right? Uh, we, we know about what the Belgian Empire did in the Congo and what the German Reich, the German Empire, Imperial Germany did in other parts of Africa, uh, going in pretty much enslaving the native population and, and extracting the resources from those areas. Uh, but what we don't learn about and what we really don't know is that the, uh, or, or we're not taught in school, at least here in this country, uh, that this was going on here at home as well, yeah. uh, right, right here in West Virginia. Yeah, that's, you know, when, when I think about that time period specifically too, like the, the Southern European colonization of um, Central and South America. Sure. It is yeah. virtually on the same timeline there. And that's, and that's and that kind of brings us to this topic of justice, right? Um, so a lot of what we would call um, social justice theology, social theology, right? That kind of thing. A lot of that grew out of what the um, the Franciscans and the Jesuits were seeing, you know, in Central and South America with the indigenous population, and at the same time, virtually the same time that that was happening, it was happening to people of European descent right here in the United States, right? In, mm-hmm. in this really remote area of, um, of West Virginia, right? Exactly. Yeah. You, you have the same sort of issues uh, going on here as you had in Central and South America, uh, in Africa, as we spoke of earlier, you, you have, um, you have a a scenario where um, if you live here, you are owned by the company. Uh, so what happens is you all of that independence that that you had living here in this region as as you're you're a landowner, uh, you are wealthy so to speak, in, in this own little uh, bubble economy in this region, all of that is wiped out. Mm. Um, all of that is completely wiped out. And along with that, um, a measure of the culture is wiped out as well. A measure of the communal aspect of the culture is wiped out a sense the sense of community and the sense of kinship uh, a lot of that is destroyed yeah uh because what you have happened is you what what you call what we call the company system right so so these these camps and these towns spring up 
uh, all along uh, the countryside where wherever there is a coal mine, wherever the company moves in to mine the coal, uh, they spring up camps to house the workers. Uh, and these become what are known as coal camps and, and along with those company towns. So you live in a town that is owned by the company. You live in a house that is owned by the company. Uh, you do your shopping at a store that is completely owned by the company. You are paid not in American currency, but in company, what we call script, company money. Um, you worship in a company church and you listen to a company gospel preached by a company preacher every Sunday. Wow. So, so, So you are completely at the mercy of, of the company that owns your town and, and in a very literal sense owns you, owns your life. Wow. And, and that's, that's, that's why I say that, that this, this region of the country was um, corporate colonized. It was, it's suffered from corporate colonization and industrial enslavement. Wow. Because the, the, the population was, uh, we were looked at nothing but labor to extract the resources yeah. for the company that who the pe- people that own the company didn't live here. So all of the, not only were the resources taken out from here and shipped off uh, to help build the country, uh, but all of the money from those resources was shipped out of here as well. Yeah. And that, you know, just hearing, hearing you talk about that, I'm, I'm kind of reminded that, you know, cause you talked about it first, like the, the, the local, you know, white settlers, European descendants were the, mm-hmm. the primary population here, but there, there comes a point right where the company again starts to bring in, um, African-American labor as well. And then, and I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but they're part of, part of the story of American racism is born out of that corporate colonization and industrial enslavement, right? Because at some point, right, the, the company, you know, has, you have Irish miners and you have German miners and you have Welsh miners and you have African miners and the company works really hard to make sure that you never get together yes. around your common experience of being exploited labor uh, yeah. and instead pits these these cultural groups against one another, right? Absolutely. That's yeah, it's one of the unique aspects of this part of the country is how diverse it was. This was uh, one of the most diverse populations uh, that you can think of here. Like you said, you, you had a lot of, uh, once coal started to boom, you have a lot of Southern blacks that start to move up North into the coal fields to go to work. You have a lot of immigrants from all over Europe, uh, Irish immigrants, Welsh immigrants, a lot of Welsh immigrants who have coal mining experience at home in Wales come here, uh, Eastern Europeans, uh, there, there are, and then late, a little later on, uh, getting into the World War I area, 
era, rather, you have uh, a lot of Syrian immigrants that come into the area as well, along with a rather sizable Jewish population in the area. So, yeah, it's a, it's a vastly diverse group of people uh, that are intentionally by the company. The company tries to intentionally keep them apart, keep them separated. The the the, the company towns, the coal camps are segregated. It's not so much in a way, it's not that you couldn't interact with folks from other ethnic backgrounds, but all of these folks lived in different parts of the camp or the town. Uh, and by the way, uh, the, the black miners always had the worst part of the coal camp. Mm. Uh, yeah. they, they always lived in the worst part. Uh, and, and conditions in the coal camps, regardless of what your ethnicity was, was not great. Uh, there, there was a lot of disease in those camps. You had people, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, packed in tightly together in close quarters. Uh, usually, you know, there was a water source of some type that ran through the camp, a creek uh, or, or river. Uh, that was what you used for your washing and your drinking water and your sewer. Uh, the, 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 the privies were, were built over top of the wa same water that you used to drink out of. Mm. So, so, so typhoid was always a big issue in these camps. Um, so yeah, the health, uh, again, it's, it's the exploitation of the worker, uh, the, the, the folks who owned the companies did not live here, had no stake in the community, had no stake uh, with the population. Uh, all the population was to them was a means to get the coal out of the ground. Right. So. Yeah. So that just that, that kind of corporate industrial um, dehumanization. Exactly. Right. Um, that, that we, you know, we, we do talk about that a lot in terms of race relations. Um, and I, and I think probably people who are not from this area that are listening to this might be really surprised to hear, um, how prevalent that was, um, across the board, which by the way, is not to equate what happened there with black slavery in the South, right? That's, Correct. I'm not making that argument that, you know, oh, Irish people were enslaved because that's that's kind of BS, right? It, that's right. an entirely different, you know. But it but it is still dehumanization, yes. right? On on a on in a very organized, intentional way, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, you know, kind of fast forwarding now through the history, coal coal industry still exists, but is not anywhere near what it used to be. Um, and, and I don't know how much, we, you know, we can talk about there. There's the dehumanization part that we've talked about that, that continues to echo, uh, in that part of the world, but there's also like horrible environmental degradation, right? Um, that, you know, we, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, mountaintop removal mining and how horrible that is. Uh, and it is, but I mean, it started, the in-ground mining was not a clean game either, as far as, and the environment goes. 
No, not not at all. And, and again, you have a lot of justice issues still uh, going on today that that are directly stemming uh, and interrelated from uh, that legacy of the corporate colonization and then industrial enslavement. Uh, as you said, the, the environmental impact of that, we, we are dealing with that greatly now. Yeah. Um, the, the, there are numerous studies that have been done that, that link how the, the mountaintop removal, as you said, the, the dust that is put into the air from blowing the tops of these mountains off uh, is a significant contributor to uh, the large number of cases of cancer mm. uh, in the coal fields. Uh, the, the, the runoff, the drainage from the underground mines that has, um, in many cases, contaminated groundwater uh, and, and run off into streams along with the mountaintop removal as well. Uh, so, so you're dealing with uh, a water contamination issue in many of these communities um, that, that, that is a significant issue, particularly in the midst of a pandemic, right? Um, water is essential for life, but, but now more so than ever. Um, you've got some communities in the coal fields, Keystone in, in McDowell County, uh, which is uh, not not too terribly far from here. Uh, it, perfect example. They've been under a boil water advisory for the last eight years. Wow. Uh, and that's not unique. They're not the only community uh, yeah. that, that, that has been under uh, those similar types of situations with their water systems. Um, so, yeah, uh, you've got that. You've got economic inequality and disparity. You've got the substance abuse. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, too, because that's, yep. you know, if, if there's anything else that region is known for besides coal, mm -hmm. it is that it's, you know, basically the opioid capital of the U.S., right? Yeah, exactly. Which, uh, again, is all interrelated and tied up with... Uh, yeah. The, the industry, um, and because you have a workforce uh, that who, whose bodies are liter literally broken down um, and, and grinded down on a continuous basis. I mean, coal mining is one of the most dangerous jobs uh, that one can have, even today in, in an age where it is uh, much more regulated than it was 100 years ago. With, with many more safety precautions in place, you still have the dangers of, and a lot of folks getting hurt. So you've got pharmaceutical companies developing these opioid-based pain medications and deliberately targeting coal field communities with these medications because miners are in pain. Uh, so a lot of your folks who ended up being uh, uh, ensnared in this addiction crisis uh, and dealing with substance abuse started out with taking these medications just so they could continue to work. Mm. Um, 
So, yeah. So you've got that whole dynamic at play as well. Uh, you still got the issue of workers' rights uh, at play, um, especially with the continued downturn of the coal industry where, where our economic, uh, the market is not as reliant, reliant on coal as it once was. So the industry continues to take a downturn uh, so you have a lot of coal companies that are going out of business that are declaring bankruptcy. And with that, you've got miners that are not being paid mm. for the work that they're doing. You have miners who have worked their whole lives, whose pensions all of a sudden have been taken away from them because the company that they gave their soul to uh, has declared bankruptcy and wiped out their pension plan. Um just last July, uh, and you you probably remember this, Joe, uh, in Harlan County, Kentucky, which is uh, in this region, uh, which is actually the the where my uh, mother's family is from. Uh, you had uh, a group of miners who blocked a train track for. Oh, gosh, uh, I, can't, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but I know it was over a month. Yeah, I was going to say several weeks at least, I remember. So, yeah. so they, they blocked a train track uh, to keep uh, a coal train from coming out of the mine because they hadn't received their paychecks. Uh, so you've got all of these uh, justice-related issues that are all intertangled and, and intertwined with one another, uh, access to health care. Uh, is a big issue here, uh, uh, or I should say a lack of access. Yeah. Of care. Uh, food deserts are a big issue here. And, and as you said, the continued lingering effects of dehumanization, uh, this, this notion of we don't matter, mm. uh, that, that all we are is is a means to make money for somebody else. So, yeah, that, that kind of makes me wonder. And you, and you being a native of the area can probably articulate this way better than I can even think how to answer the question though. What, what does that do to a culture, you know, to, to be a culture of people who have been dehumanized, who have been told, for generations now that that their worth or lack of worth you know is tied up in this um this in unjust or unjust industry right what what does that do not just to a human person but to society in, in that area I, I think it fundamentally breaks down community right it, it fundamentally uh, affects your caring of where you call home, your caring for where you call home. And, and probably, um, probably the biggest issue of that is, is it, it lends itself to creating a culture of fatalism. Uh, it, it lends itself to creating a culture of hopelessness where, you know, is it any wonder that that if I get up in the morning and and, and I want to stick a needle in my arm, to that I do it? 
because I really don't, I can't see past today. Yeah. Um, where is my hope for the future? Where, where is my hope coming from? Mm. Which opens up a whole theological can of worms. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's kind of partly the direction I was thinking about going with, with the conversation here, because, yeah. um, you know, one of the things that you and I were kind of talking about as we were preparing, you know, to come on here and do the the podcast was um, kind of this, you know, the the company church, right? Preaching the company gospel, which is largely centered around, number one, your worth is tied up in what you can produce for the company, right? And that's And that's how God views you, right? So that becomes embedded in your identity. But also like this, what I would call kind of a, a soft gospel or a cheap gospel that's all about um, individual salvation and your individual forgiveness for individual acts of sin rather than, you know, a more holistic, you know, kind of approach to, you know, the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven, however you want to. So how, you know. Yeah. The, so the theology of the region is centered around that that gospel of individual worth um, as defined by the company, largely, right? Right. It's it's really a it's a transactional gospel, mm-hmm. right? It, it's um, it, it's the gospel of prid uh, quo prid quo pro, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's. Um, um, yeah, the, the the substitutionary atonement of um, I say this uh, sinner's prayer and I'm saved and I get my ticket punched to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, by the way, sounds a heck of a lot better than living in the coal fields, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So so it is. It's meant to soothe and to comfort and, and to um, uh, placate. Yeah. Right? Um, there's a better life coming. So just hold on. Right. So your suffering is meaningless. Yeah. Right. Um, and which also lends itself to, um, and we see this, this is so prevalent, not just here, but, but really in, in a North American Christian context, what that does is it, it, prevents you from thinking that there there is anything that you must do here in in the here and now in the present Uh, because if all of this is going to be uh, all all of these wrongs are going to be righted at the end then why should I work to right them now exactly yeah um so so yeah which lends itself to um, I think we we have viewed sin and salvation far too narrowly, uh, and 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 I think we what we need to do is is broaden our vision and our concept of exactly what sin and exactly what salvation is. Yeah, and that um, those things are not just things that happen on the level of the individual, right? Correct. There, there is corporate, and when I say corporate sin, I don't mean 
industrial corporations in this use of the word. I mean, there's communal, I guess, sure. maybe is a better way to say it, right? Um, right. There, yeah. And, and, I, and I want to just make clear as well, I, I don't want people to get the impression that I am anti-cult. Uh, b- because that's that's not the case. Uh, I, I am anti-exploitation. I am anti-sin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I come from a long line of coal miners. Uh, and it's, it's part of the culture of this place. Uh, I'm not anti-coal. Uh, I, I am anti-anything uh, that exploits and denigrates and, and creates injustice yeah. for my people. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, but yeah, exactly. What does it mean to be saved from sin, right? Um, you know, in, in in a very Wesleyan view of, of what sin is, it, it's a corruption of the image of God within you, uh, which, uh, as Wesley Wesley called it, a sickness, right? Mm. He compared it to it to an illness. Uh, which leads to preventing you from being able to love God and love neighbor because I can't see the image of God in you. So if I can't see the image of God in my neighbor, then that leads to a dehumanization, mm-hmm. right? So, so if I look at you as less than, uh, then, then it's easy for me to set up a system to exploit you. Uh, so that dehumanization leads to victimization. So, so yes, we, we suffer from personal sin, but we also can be victims of systemic and structural sin. Yeah. So, so what if we began to think about salvation from sin, being saved from sin, as not only being saved from my own personal sins, but being saved from the effects of structural sin as well. And, wow. and, I, and I think that that really just is a paradigm shift and flips the whole dynamic of, of the sin salvation narrative and how we frame the good news of, of the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah, and I was I was about to say that not only does it does flip the paradigm, but in a way it it I think flips the paradigm back to a more biblical understanding of sin yes. and salvation than this highly individualistic thing that we've made it, especially through a lot of our you know fundamentalist slash evangelical traditions. Which also, by the way, are prevalent in your neck of the woods, right? Absolutely. Yes, which I think can be traced, and I don't have any proof to back this statement up, but I think you can trace that back to the company church, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that has to do with that. Um, So, yeah, so so if we can grasp this idea that grace, divine grace, is powerful enough not only to save me and to save you, but to also save and transform society and, and, and make it more into the image of the kingdom of God in the here and now, uh, a, a, a concept of communal salvation, yeah, uh, which 
reconciles, uh, it brings reconciliation to a, a sinned against people uh, with those that have sinned against them. And it also reconciles communities. It brings that, brings back what we have lost in all of this, which is our, our deep uh, ingrained sense of kinship and community here in the Coldfield. Mm. So sorry to interrupt this conversation, but I wanted to take just a minute to thank some of the folks that help us make the Accidental Tomatoes podcast happen through our Patreon platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can be part of a growing group of people who are committed to helping create and curate all the great content for the Accidental Tomatoes community. We're grateful for all of the contributions of all of our patrons, and especially want to thank our Master Gardener level contributors, Jen and Harry Morgan, and Kevin and Heather Malcolm. To learn more about how you can support this podcast and the community we're creating, just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes. You can also support our work by simply leaving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast or streaming application. That helps other folks find our community and participate in the conversation. And now, back to the podcast. I, I love how that, um, just that whole notion of, of thinking of the gospel as being transformational rather than transactional. Right? Yes. That's and again, I, I find that to be a much more, if you want to use the term biblical view, I, I, I find that to be a much more biblical view. So you're, when you're talking about how in, in that particular region, you know, that, that kind of communal transformation can happen. One of the things that, that you were saying to me beforehand um, had to do with how, how we can begin to, to help communities in that area to contextualize and interpret and discover the Christ, right? Um, not as Jesus's last name, but as, you know, um, you know, the, the enduring spirit of reality, like to help them discover that on their own terms. So yeah, unpack a little bit what, what you mean by that statement that you kind of made that to me when we were preparing here. Yeah, well, and again, and I like what you said uh, about bringing this back to a much more biblical view of, of the faith and a much more traditional view of the faith. Yeah. Well, you know, the classical atonement theory uh, is not substitutionary atonement. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's, it, you know, if, if you read much of the ancient Christian writers and the patriarchs and of the early church, their interpretation of what Jesus did on the cross was a, a triumph, a conquering of Satan and the powers and principalities uh, that rule this world, uh, which liberates, and you can find this in their writings, liberates from enslavement to sin. Mm. Uh, which is basically when it, when the rubber hits the road, that's what we've been talking about, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. So what does that look like uh, in a con to contextualize that here? Um, it, it's what I call uh, the, the holler gospel. Yeah. So, so um, for people who aren't from Appalachia, you're going to have to explain what a holler is. <laughs> okay. So, so, so it's not holler, just yelling at each other. Right? No, no. Um, 
a hollow is um, it, it is a a it's what it sounds like. It's a hollowed out uh, place in between two hills. It, it's it, it's a depression uh, that that runs in between the two in between two hills. So a, a geographical feature, right? Like where yes. where a creek or a stream or something. Right. Runs between two hills where, yeah, okay. And, and, and for those of us, a lot of us live up these hollows, but what we call them, the, 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 the Appalachian pronunciation of a hollow is a holler, right? So, so, so the, the holler gospel is a gospel that comes from the low places, right? It, it's a gospel that comes from the depression. Uh, from the hollowed out places uh, of life. Um, for those of you that are familiar with with Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, his 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 whole premise of the book is based around the question: What does the religion of Jesus have to say to those with their backs against the wall? Mm. Our people here in the coal fields have had their backs against the wall for over a century. Yeah. And generation after generation. Generation after generation. So what does the religion of Jesus have to say to us? Um, in my way of thinking, allowing the people of this region to reinterpret Jesus on their own terms is what will liberate individuals, liberate and transform these communities. Um, because once they see that Jesus is one of them, mm. then when we get to the humanness of Jesus uh, and, and see that he too was born um, in, in a backwoods uh, occupied land and born to poor working into a poor working class family. Um, I think it has the the potential to to change everything for folks. Um, and what that does is, for generations and generations, we have been told or or we have been made to feel like, perhaps is a better way to say it, that like I said earlier, that we don't matter, that, that we, that our lives don't matter. Mm -hmm. um, what this does to, to, to allow for a contextualization of a coal field Christ is allows for the recovery of our somebodyness, mm. uh, a recovery of, of our dignity as human beings, and and then 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 that allows us to ask the question: Okay, what does God have to say about all of this that's going on here? Yeah. What what does God have to say about this? How does how does this fit in, or or does not fit in, with the kingdom of God? Man, that's that's such an empowering message. 
I think, and again, I think it's a very biblical message, right? And um, to begin to um, to see that you're not what the company has always said you are, or for that matter, what the government has always said you are, right? Because you can't separate the you know, what these corporations were doing, what, what the capitalist system was doing there, you can't separate that from the larger, um, you know, government industrial military complex, right? It's all, yeah, it's all tied up in, in one thing that, and, and, you know, that has been defining the very lives of a group of people in a particular place in the world, uh, as, as being essentially purposeless, except to support the complex, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, but, but now your, your existence is defined by your solidarity with Jesus, or rather Jesus' solidarity with you. Yeah. You better preach that, brother. I'm telling you <laughs> what, man. <laughs> I plan on it, Joe. I bet you do. I bet you do. Well, I know, I mean, you know, I we've known each other for a while and I've known about your passion uh, for the people in that area and how excited you were to, to get down there, you know, this year um, and really kind of dig in and go to work. But then um, this thing called COVID-19 yeah. came around and not only did that mean that you couldn't gather, not just with your congregation, right. But with your community down there, you couldn't gather in person, uh, you know, so that happened. And then your particular County is like, one of the hot spots in all of West Virginia too. So, so, you know, I know that that, um, but again, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get to is that is just another kind of arm of this, this whole injustice thing, you know? So I guess, do you, do you see the, the, the outbreak in your region as being at least indirectly a result of some of these other justice issues we've been talking about? Absolutely. Uh, the, the the health issues, uh, some or we hear a lot now um, concerning COVID and those that are most at risk to it. Uh, as we hear a lot of uh, about comorbidities, right? Um, there, there is perhaps no greater comorbidity that you could have that would make you more vulnerable to COVID-19 than black lung disease. Mm. Uh, and, and for those of you that are not familiar with black lung disease, it is a debilitating lung disease that is caused by uh, the um, continuous inhaling of coal dust uh, for a long period of time. Uh, and it is an irreversible disease uh, that once you get it, it only gets worse. Uh, my granddad actually died from complications of black lung and and my grandmother fought for years uh, to get benefits uh, for him. And that's that's one, again, another interrelated injustice uh, that goes along with all that we have been talking about uh, the, the insurance companies that work for the coal industry fight folks tooth and nail uh, to get benefits to help them uh, with their black lung. Um, so, so yeah, so, so you've got a lot of folks in this region, and in recent years, we've had a major uptick in black lung cases. 
Uh, yeah, because it had been on the decline for a while with more automation and with yeah. fewer people actually mining coal and all of that, right? But, it had, uh, you know, actually the, a law was passed. Um, I don't remember the exact year. It was late 60s, early 70s that that the, the intention of the law was to eradicate black lung disease. Uh, that has never happened. Uh, the enforcement of the law has been quite lax. Uh, but yeah, uh, we've we've seen a major uptick in it uh, in in diagnoses of the disease. Um, and, and those folks, uh, well, I, I know personally some folks that have that disease and have had COVID. Mm. Uh, and and it was not fortunately uh, the one gentleman that I know of he survived, uh, but but it puts folks at much greater risk uh, than than uh, some other places in the country where you wouldn't have that present. Yeah, well, and then you also have you know a, a, an aging population. You know you've got yes. uh, you know a, a higher prevalence of senior citizens because. Young folks have largely moved out of that area, um, not totally, but there you, you've definitely got an older population there, which is more um, susceptible to COVID. Uh, and then you've got other complicating factors like diabetes. We got a super high rate of diabetes in super that area. Super high right? rate of diabetes, correct? Yeah, which and, which, which tends to uh, which is tied into the the food insecurity. Um, the food deserts here, the, the, because the cheapest food that you can buy, it also ties in with the poverty issue. Yeah. The, the cheapest food is the least healthy for you, which lends itself to diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the land has been destroyed. So even growing your own food is not Correct. the option that it once was. I mean, it's not that you can't do that, but it's not, you know, it's not as prevalent as it once was. The land is still owned by the companies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just, you know, the deeper we dive into this and the more just interrelated we see all of these things and, and they're all tied up um, in these these just layers upon layers upon layers of injustice and dehumanization. So I guess the the big question, because this has been a lot of doom and gloom so far, right? Um, but but I, I know you know you see some hope, right? And and you're not alone. Like there there are some hopeful stories still yeah. springing out of that. Where where do you see hope in the hollers down there, Brad? The holler gospel, yes, sir. <laughs> the, the the hope is in Jesus Christ, and the hope is in. Uh, the liberation and the transformation that comes from him, that, that comes from God's kingdom. Um, and, and that's what excites me about being here. That, that's what excites me uh, about uh, what I see uh, in, in the future for this area. Uh, you know, I, I have felt called uh, to do work in this area, to do ministry in this area for quite some time. Um, I, but I was not located in this area. So I was like, okay, God, how is that going to work? Uh, I really can't do any sort of ministry in the area and I'm not physically present there. Uh, so uh, when the phone call came uh, back in February that, that I was, that, 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 
my bishop was appointing me to a church here right in the middle of the coal fields, I was like, okay, God, that there's my answer. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I feel that there is hope uh, for transformation. There is hope for change here. Uh, but, and it all starts with uh, allowing these people, my people in this area, uh, allowing them to meet Jesus on their own terms and, and to uh, interpret Jesus in light of this place. Yeah. And again, I, I think that that has the ability to change everything. Uh, along with um, uh, a coalition of like-minded folks uh, that that are ready uh, to to storm uh, the halls of power with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, that's some good stuff. Yeah. I, you know, and I think honestly, I think a lot of what you're saying is going to resonate with a lot of the listeners to this podcast who you know, kind of maybe consider themselves as, as I've used the term a lot, exiles, right, from the church, uh, from the institutional church, right? Uh, the folks who um, who were not hearing a gospel like the gospel that you and I are talking about here, but instead we're hearing more of that, like, individual salvation gospel and a, a behavior management system uh, for Christianity. Um, I, I just think... Um, that that holler gospel, I think, is something that can resonate with people outside the hollers too. You know that are that are looking for a real, authentic, and genuine um, connection with the with the divine, however they define that, right? And it always it, it always starts in the low places, right? It, yeah, it oh, that's I love that man. I just I really am probably going to steal what you just said <laughs> <laughs> because it's so good. Man. Yeah, I mean, it starts with in the midst of oppression uh, and, and in the midst of uh, an oppressed people and, and, you know, whether we are willing to admit it or not, we have been oppressed and continue to be and have been for over a century. Um, uh, as we are sitting here talking, I, I am oh, roughly eight miles or so uh, Southeast uh, or, or yeah, south let's say of Blair Mountain and I don't know how familiar folks are that are listening uh, with with Blair Mountain but in, in 1921 uh, the miners of this region uh, became so fed up with being dehumanized uh, that they took up arms and, and marched uh, and went to war uh, with uh, the local authorities uh, for their humanity to be recognized. Mm. Uh, and and this, like I say, there's a lot of symmetry here with the movement for black lives because what, in, in essence, what they were doing, they were standing up and saying, look, we are United States citizens and we deserve to the same rights as every other United States citizen. Minors' lives matter. Mm. That's exactly what they were saying. So, hundred well 99 years later uh, we're looking to build a movement that that will do the same thing only in a in a spiritual context uh, you know they were known as the redneck army yeah 
because they 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 tied red bandanas around their necks to to signify who they were uh, and to differentiate themselves, and they became known as the Redneck Army, and that is one of the etymologies of the term redneck. Uh, we're we're looking to build a new Redneck Army, <laughs> and, and rather than uh, storming Blair Mountain or or, or storming over a mountain armed with rifles uh, demanding justice, uh, storming the halls of power armed with the good news of God's kingdom, and storming the powers and principalities and saying, demanding uh, justice in the name of Jesus Christ. Mm. Man, your vision is so inspiring, Brad. And uh, I'm excited to... I'm excited to be, you know, in, in a friendship with you and I'm excited to, to be, you know, in whatever way possible, you know, a partner in the work, um, that you're doing, that you're, you're beginning to, to put the pieces in place of down there. I think it's, um, it's such an important, um, it's such an important piece of justice work, right. That, that needs to happen in the world. And, you know, I, I am. I'm just sitting here thinking as you were talking about Blair Mountain, like we're recording this um, right before the Labor Day weekend, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously it'll be a few weeks after that when this when it's um, out to the public. But, um, you know, just thinking about labor movements as justice movements, I think I think we've lost a lot of that um, in our culture um, over the over the years. I think it's been co-opted. Um, on many sides, you know, by a lot of political uh, interests and economic interests, but um, the the heart of labor movements uh, has always been a justice movement, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's always uh, it's always been about freedom. Yeah, uh, about getting folks free. Yeah, and and, and you know, none that and that's our state motto here in West Virginia, right? Montani Semper Libre. Mountaineers are always free. Uh, but we aren't all free until all of us are free. There again, man, you, you, you so. better preach that brother. I'm telling you what <laughs> you, you're making me want to stand up in my chair and give you an amen. <laughs> oh man. That. It's okay, Joe. I'll, you have my, <laughs> I, I like, I like to be talked back to when I'm preaching. You know, I, that make, you know, it, it's a little bit off topic, but it, it does kind of remind me that, um, you and I both spent some time at different times um, in a in a historically African American church. Yes. Um, you, you pastored there for a couple of years, and I, I did an internship there, and so we knew those people really well. And uh, that was that was always my favorite place to preach because you knew whether you were bringing it or not because they let you know, man. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you you didn't have to wonder if the sermon hit home or not. That's exactly right, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I love that. I love that church so much. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I, I, will, I will carry the folks of uh, Logan Memorial in Parkersburg. Uh, I, I'll carry them with me for the remainder of my days. They're yeah. special. Yeah, I, I remember I, I, I wrote a, a blog post a couple of months ago. Um, like right, I think it was right after the George, George Floyd murder. Um, that, you know, it, how the, how the black church taught me that black lives matter. Right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. that was, I remember know, reading that. That was excellent. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, yeah. it just, 
but it just, you know, having the privilege of being able to be in that, um, in that community, even for a short period of time. And I, and I say that, you know, not so much as just a rabbit trail, which, you know, so well, I'm so good at going down, but, but I think it, it does tie back, as you said, you know, the, the Coalfield labor issue is, um, I liked, I think the word you used was symmetrical, um, with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, I, you know, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn. They're, they're not the same thing. And I want to be careful to, to not sound like I'm trying to equate those things because we're talking about completely different kinds of injustices. Sure. Um, yeah. And not not all injustice is the same injustice. But um, but all injustice needs to be wiped out. Right. And, uh, right. Yeah. And, and the more we can find that symmetry between these movements and the more we can integrate where possible um, I think, you know, the more powerful um, the, the collective voice becomes, right? Yeah, the, the, the symmetry, I think, exists in and the synergy between movements exists in that uh, both both groups have been othered. Yes. Yeah. Right? Uh, as, in some way, shape, form or fashion. Both groups have been othered, yeah, and and looked at as in varying degrees have looked at as being something less than a full human being, yeah, and and something that is to be exploited for labor, uh, and exploited at the expense of of capital for someone else, yeah, yeah, and you know, and and historically, what what oppressors of any kind have always done is to, is to, and that guys goes back to something we were saying earlier about, you know, oppressors tend to try to pit the oppressed against one another so that they can't rise up against the oppressors. And, um, I think, you know, um, movements that, you know, and I'm, I, you know, when you talk about the Holler gospel, man, I'm not just talking about a Sunday morning sermon series. I'm thinking that's a movement, baby. <laughs> and, uh, and when you start to think about, you know, that movement, Black Lives Matter movement, movements for um, for um, LGBTQ uh, full inclusion, right? All of those movements are are all trying to upend various types of oppression, right? And the more, you know, I love that word synergy that you use, right? That the more we can synergize those movements the more effective we can be, right? Which doesn't mean that you lose the identity of, of your own context, right? It's not, it's not to whitewash any of that, um, literally and figuratively. I, I don't think, Joe, I don't think that anything frightens the powers and principalities and makes them shake to the core more so than when oppre different oppressed people groups start talking about coming together. Yeah, yeah. Joint movement. That's when things get real and things get serious. And that's when the opportunity for real change starts to happen. And that's why you see throughout history over and over again that it is the powers fight so hard to keep people separated and to keep people apart because they know that if we ever put all of our differences aside and we decide that we're going to come together in one mass movement, that it's a wrap. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's over. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. We could talk for hours. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Well, um, before we wrap up, Brad, I guess, um, is there is there anything, you know, I mean, obviously you're working on the, um, this holler gospel movement, and, and I'm really excited to see what kind of directions that takes. But are there any projects or anything you're working on? And, and if people want to connect with you, uh, how do they do that? Where do they find you? Well, we, we are, I am currently in, in the midst of, of developing uh, what I'm calling a, a 3D model of contextualization. And I hope that, that Bishop Sandra doesn't hit me for copyright infringement because I totally stole the model from her 3D d- uh, discover, develop, and deploy. <laughs> that, that <we laughs> Listen, man, that's that we've implemented in the West Virginia conference. Yeah, so so just to help our listeners out, the the mission statement of the West Virginia conference of the United Methodist Church is discover, develop, and deploy passionate spiritual leaders to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Right. So I don't think you're really. I don't think there's any copyright infringement. I think you're living out the mission. So. <laughs> So what that entails really is just it, it's the, the foundation of this holler gospel movement. It's, it's getting folks uh, together and, and discovering or rediscovering probably is a better term who Christ is and who Christ is in this context and, and, and starting to build a coalition uh, at, for that redneck army. Uh, to, to take shape. And, and yeah, if anyone out there is interested in, in learning more about this uh, or, or furthering this discussion or if anything that, that we talked about today piqued your interest in, in any way, shape or form, yeah, you can you can get in touch with me or you can email me at bradgdavis71 at gmail.com. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to to have a conversation with you, and, and if you're interested in in getting involved in this movement, uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in having a conversation. Yeah. And you, and you're you're out on the social media world too, right? On Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and right. Yes, uh, you look me up on Facebook. Uh, I'm not twittering as much as as I once was, just because that that's a you know, talk about powers and principalities, man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that can be some dark stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, but but Facebook on social media is is the would be the primary way. Instagram as well, uh, where you can look me up. So so yeah, just just search me out. Brad Very Davis. good. Yeah, yeah. And we'll have some links in the description for this podcast. Um, you know, where, where people can uh, where people can find you. So, well, thanks, my friend. Again, I wish we could spend a lot longer um, talking about this, but I know. Um, it's a middle. It's a middle of a Thursday afternoon when we're recording this, and I know we both got stuff uh, that we need to get on with. But but I really appreciate you being with me for this episode, and um, appreciate your friendship, and I and I appreciate you know the the work that you're doing down there in your home country to um, to change people's lives and to change the world, man. Uh, Joe, thanks, man, and thank you for uh, inviting me on again, and and for the opportunity just to share with folks. Uh, what it is that, that we're doing down here. And, and uh, yeah, I, I greatly admire what you are doing and all the work that you're doing uh, with new wineskins and, and the, the whole new church movement that, that you've got going on. And, 
you're you're one of the good guys, man. And I appreciate and I, that. And I greatly appreciate you and all that you do. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, brother. Well, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. I'd love to. That was all really so good. Brad and I really could have gone on talking for a long, long time about his visions for a new kind of justice-based community in the coalfields. It's an issue that's important, not just in the region uh, of the country where Brad and I happen to live, but it has broad-reaching implications for justice movements, I think, really around the world. So thanks for taking the time to listen, and I hope you'll engage with the conversation in some of our online platforms. We are online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, you can find us at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages for all of the up-to-the-minute updates of the really cool things that are going on across our community. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and review on whatever platform that you use to listen to your podcast. Again, that helps other people find us and connect with our community and participate in the conversation and just as a reminder, if you want to support the work we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where your support helps us offset some of the expenses that go along with producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.